Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So you were like totally unfit for jury service. Unfit. Biased. Unacceptable. Did they tell you you were biased? That's why you weren't allowed. No, they don't tell you. Did they stand up and say, "Susan Hennessy, you're fired"? You, me. They voted (laughs) Susan off the island. (laughs) They voted her off the jury. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the at least you're not Mullah Mansoor edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast. Very glad not to be Mullah Mansoor, or any Mullah for that matter. Hey, well, particularly Mullah Mansoor. Surely that then one. you'd be dead. You'd be dead. You'd be a dead Mullah. Just never something I've aspired to, Mullah status. Or, or, or getting killed by a drone status. Mullah yeah. Shane, as we sometimes call him. <coughs> oh, yeah. It's a very common name we for We do Mullahs. need to designate a more formal title for you. Like the you Grand so? Poobah. is good. Security. I definitely like Poobah. You don't want to be the Grand Mufti of the podcast? That'd be <laughs> good. Know. That's fitting. Mufti sounds good, too. Mufti sounds like a, do- like, a, like a name for like a kitten or something cute. Yeah, or... Like a muffin. Mufti. Yeah, but then you could wear a fez. Oh, my gosh. And you know what? I have a fez. Well, Joe has a fez. Which I he, bet he does. No, he does. He wears it for parties. Like, for special parties, he has a black fez. It's awesome. All right, Ben, we're going to have a special party just so Joe can come in his fez. Oh, I have a fez, too. So Do you? Yeah, we can have, like, Everybody the, has fezes. The, we'll have a fez, fez party. <laughs> I like this. We'll have a fez party sometime. We'll definitely do it. Uh, I am joined here as always by my good friends Tamara Kaufman with us. Hello, Tamara. Hello, Shane. And Susan Hennessy. Hi, Shane. We didn't have you guys here last week. I know. I haven't been in the past two podcasts. I know. You're back. You're, I'm you're back. Have, we have better missed than ever. you. Thank you. I you didn't you get picked for jury too. duty. I didn't. Everything is okay. You didn't get killed in a drone strike. <laughs> right. Hopefully we didn't cause too much trouble, uh, did we, Ben, with us when we were here by ourselves last week? Cops haven't called me yet. Okay, that's good. There, there's less scotch, though, in, there the, is. in the Bunahaven yeah, yeah. Uh, bottle. Oh, it's <clears> very <throat> dangerous to leave these two alone, Susan. It's very true. Um, this week on the show, President Obama makes one last pivot to Asia in an official visit. The United States kills the Taliban's leader, and a State Department Inspector General report scolds Hillary Clinton and a lot of other people for their use of private email. Um, Can I just say that it's really pivot to Asia, given how much back and forth there has been, is really the wrong metaphor. It's the swivel to Asia? I, I want to call it the swivel or the oh, pirouette like to Asia. Because <laughs> <laughs> it keeps going around and around and around. And around. You can't ignore the rest of the world, so you're sort of twirling in place. I it's like something this. other than a pivot. Well, let's talk about the swirl or the pirouette to Asia uh, tomorrow. Would you say, what were the high points, the low points? Well... So there was, a, there was, and there is a lot of symbolism in this presidential trip. I mean, first of all, this is a president who has not traveled that much as uh, abroad, um, but this is his third, I think, trip to East Asia. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's pretty significant in and of itself. But also significant uh, trip to Vietnam, which of course is a country with a lot of tortured history um, in the United States and and with the United States. And while there, announced that we would lift our long-standing uh, ban on sales of arms to Vietnam. So it's a new phase in the relationship. That's huge. Yeah. 
and then to Japan for the G7 summit and a trip to Hiroshima, uh, which is um, really powerfully symbolic. And I was thinking about both of these in terms of how countries overcome tortured relationships. Um, there's been a, a ton written recently about the U.S. and Iran and their horrible history and can they get over it. I don't see either of those governments making a lot of effort. But in the Vietnam case and in the Japan case, there's a lot going on there. Um, I was reading this really interesting short paper that was put out by the Belfer Center at Harvard this week on forgiveness mm -hmm. in international relations. It's Wendy Sherman's piece, it's right? It's Wendy yeah. Sherman's piece, the result of her year at the Belfer Center after she left the State Department where she was undersecretary for political affairs. And the main finding from this study is that it's not the case that countries overcome their, their bad history with one another and then begin to work together on a common interests. Rather, it seems, when you look at these cases, the countries see they have shared interests, and that motivates them to find ways to apologize and get over the past. So it is very kind of realist-driven, interest-driven, and I think in the Vietnam case, that's clearly true. The rise of China and, you know, an opportunity for the United States uh, in Southeast Asia, and that kind of nudges us forward on how to get past the war. So but Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Specific to the Vietnam question, I mean, so, so one thing that Obama has taken a lot of hits on specifically in lifting the arms embargo is that Vietnam has not met sort of the human rights conditions. Um, and so they, we've given up a lot uh, sort As of As opposed to like Saudi interest. Arabia or Pakistan who are doing great on human rights conditions. I just wonder if there's sort of a tension between this question of working together moving forward versus baseline accountability either for past wrongs and, and more importantly for sort of, uh, you know, current conditions. I don't know. I, I, I think the most interesting thing about the Vietnam visit was just how remarkably warm and enthusiastic Obama's reception was. I mean, this is a man who is, uh, you know, deeply unadmired throughout much of the world that he was once popular in. But, you know, the, the Middle East, people talk about you know, him with a lot of venom from a lot of different quarters. But in Vietnam, I, I mean, he was received like Wilson in Europe right. in, in, well, in, in the Versailles Treaty. Well, and especially by young Treaty. people. So maybe this explains why this is his third trip to Asia. Right. <laughs> I, I also think there's, a, there's an element of it that, you know, Wendy Sherman's piece is is illustrative of that you know this is a a country most of whose population is quite young they don't have memory of the war though they do have a gigantic quantity of unexploded ordinance ordinance that has killed or maimed a hundred thousand people since the end of the war so the the residue of that war continues to go on there and yet their contemporary fears are of the chinese there is a visceral hatred of China among a lot of people there. And the president of the United States actually stands for something in, in, in that conflict that is meaningful in a very contemporary sense. And it generates, you know, warmth, which I, I think is really interesting. I also noticed, I think this is just, it's a minor point, but it was <clears throat> something that maybe shows more about Obama in his final year. Um, he's been making himself available for many more unconventional media appearances. So he did like the Mark Marin WTF podcast. 
he did the Jerry Seinfeld riding with comedians and cars, which was really funny. And he did a thing with Anthony Bourdain uh, in yeah, Vietnam, they went so. out for noodles. Yeah, they, and I presume it was this six dollars. Was it six dollars? So this will be like on a future and yet he's episode. never done the rational security podcast. He has never not done once. it. He has not done the lawfare podcast. Not once. He has not. And it's not like we're the establishment media. We are new media. We are yeah. very we're new the media. cutting edge. Maybe sure if we, we called ourselves the WTF Rational Security sure. Podcast. If we yeah. did it in an actual garage and not just your office, which often <laughs> looks like a garage. And <laughs> it has palms. Sure. It has um, things growing right, in it. Right, we could do it between, between the palms. Between the palms, oh. right? Between the ferns. <laughs> I think but there's something about, you know, I mean, I think, you know, the nostalgia for presidents, I think, actually starts to kick in even before they left office. Yeah. Also, and whenever you see the options. <laughs> 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 What's coming next? He's like, you're going to miss me. You sure you don't want to amend that constitution? Let me have one more go of it. Can, can we just take a minute on the Hiroshima visit, though? Because yes, I, let's this talk about is this. really powerful. And this is another point, actually, that comes out in Wendy Sherman's uh, Belfer Center brief, is that, you know, what makes apologies between states meaningful? What gives them the political oomph to allow countries to move forward in the face of tortured history? And, uh, and it talks about the role of remembrance and, and the, you know, the way Germany after World War II put a real emphasis on remembering, on building memorials, on, you know, having officials participating in active ways in remembering uh, the tragic past. And in that sense, having the president visit Hiroshima is actually profoundly meaningful for the Japanese. And also, you know, as, as much as we can justify or, or debate the strategic necessity of, uh, of the strikes on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we still have to recognize the human cost mm-hmm. and the danger that, that nuclear weapons present to the world today. And visiting Hiroshima is a way of focusing on that. And those. it's interesting because it, it's been reported that um, visiting Hiroshima was sort of one of Obama's priorities from the beginning of his presidency. Mm. And so kind of like a nuclear deal with Iran, yeah, Exactly. Uh, you know, and that, that he's sort of been trying to, to find the right circumstances. Um, I think Secretary John Kerry did sort of a test visit back in April. Um, you know, they've really been sort of dancing around this for a long time. And so... Um, it's interesting to see that this was of the boxes he wants to check before he leaves office. This is obviously a really important one. Yeah, I am quite cynical about the visit to Hiroshima. Um, not because I think anything that you guys say is wrong, but I don't think it has anything to do with, you know, contemporary U.S.-Japanese warm relations. And I don't think this is something that, as best as I can tell, Jap- Japanese society has been waiting for or you know, holding its breath for, I think what the explanation for the warmth of U.S.-Japanese relations is 60 years of U.S. protection of Japan combined with one of the genuinely uh, humane and enlightened occupations in the history of the world uh, and helping Japan go in a remarkably short period of time from defeated desolate wasteland to industrial powerhouse and, you know, country with the longest lifespan in the world. And, and I think the, the, there is a country that has been awful, awful about facing its past from World War II. And that country is, well, Austria and Japan. Um, and, you know, the, the, the oddity of going to Hiroshima 
without an apology, which is kind of one of the interesting things about what Obama did. Uh, and actually, I thought one of the attractive things about it, you go there, you acknowledge, but you sort of don't apologize for, for it. Um, but I think one of the interesting things about it is it constitute, it, it oddly feeds the Japanese sense of Japan as having been, you know, a sort of victimized country in that war rather than, you know, a country that suffered a great deal wow, in that war. See, rather than, rather than, one of the perpetrators, uh, you know, one of the two great perpetrators of the most horrendous war crimes that have ever been contemplated or committed. That's very interesting because my cynical take, beyond, you know, all the nice stuff I said about forgiveness, my cynical take was that having the U.S. president go to Hiroshima was compensation for the Japanese finally coming to an agreement with South Korea on acknowledgement and reparation for the 200,000 Korean comfort women that they stole and, and held as sexual slaves during World War II, which was an incredibly politically difficult and costly thing for the Japanese government to do. And this is their payback. Right. But and interestingly, this has sort of set up another round of criticism against the Japanese in the region. Uh, there's a really interesting New York Times article on um, Korean survivors of, of Hiroshima who, um, uh, I guess, 40 to 50,000 victims um, in Hiroshima were Koreans who were actually forced laborers who had hmm. been moved there, um, faced sort of incredible um, ostracism and, and difficulty with whenever they returned to Korea. Um, so it's just it's incredibly interesting how um, complex this stuff actually ends up being. Yeah. I, I, I agree. I mean, I think the, you know, I'm not opposed to what the president did at all, because I think, you know, Hiroshima was a singular event, and it's worth the president of the United States I engaging that. But I do think that the Japanese have had a remarkable run of of remembering what was done to them and not remembering what they did. And by the way, you know, what they did this belatedly with the comfort women, uh, the Germans did in the 50s. Um, you know, and so, uh, you know, a country that, that I, I do fear that one of the consequences of what the president has done, uh, which as I say, I don't oppose, but I, but I do worry that one of the consequences of it will be to kind of reinforce the Japanese sense that, uh, you know, the main event of World War Two was was the destruction, the firebombing of Tokyo, and the and the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Well, I will just say, having I visit, visited the Hiroshima Memorial maybe three four years ago, and it, I did find it to be a remarkably candid assessment in some parts of the exhibit of Japan's you know the things that Japan did. I mean, it's uglier history. I mean, it is largely a memorial to peace. And it's obviously anti-nuclear, but I found that there was sort of some reckoning that they were trying to do in the exhibit, which, yeah, I thought was notable. But generally, I think, I take your point that, I mean, this comes up every time the Japanese leaders visit, you know, the memorial to the war dead. Right. And everyone, you know, loses their heads over that. And, and of course, you know, if, if that concern of yours, Ben, plays out, um, it will only be reinforced by the fact that President Obama got to Japan in the wake of this um, incident in which it it looks like an American soldier serving in Japan is implicated in the murder of a Japanese woman. And so the first thing the president had to do was address that directly face-to-face -face with Prime Minister Abe. Right. 
Look, I mean, I, you know, I, as I say, I'm not saying that the president was wrong to do this. Uh, I am saying that Japan's sense of historical memory vis-a-vis -vis World War II stuff is very peculiar. And, and I, I think there is, of the, the major Axis powers, there is one that has an incredibly noble history post-war of confronting its reality. Uh, both the reality of what it did and the reality of what was done to it, and it's not Japan. Yeah. Okay. Um, how lucky are you guys not to be the commander of the Taliban this week? I'm actually thinking of putting in for it now, because I hear like the job's it. open. It's not anymore. Um, <laughs> it's, it's been, the position's been, been filled. The position's <laughs> Thank been you filled. for your application. It does seem to turn over fairly frequently these days. But I have to say, this is just like, God, this is the New York Times headline. Taliban names lesser-known cleric as their new leader. Ooh. Ouch. It's not enough they kill your boss, but it's just like, ugh. <laughs> Scraping the bottom of the barrel. The oh. team in power. Oh. You might call them the JV team. <laughs> um, uh, so obviously, just to recap, there was a, a, a well, it was, I don't know if it was confirmed as a drone strike, but U.S. Yeah, confirmed. Confirmed yes. as a drone strike uh, that killed um, uh, Mullah Mansour, the head of the Taliban, uh, who was had not been the head of the Taliban for that long, by the way. He'd replaced the other guy who suddenly uh, found himself out of a job. Um, I guess my first question, my big question when I heard this was, so what? Um, you know, how, how significant is this? I mean, out, you know, is the bigger target and threat not ISIS? I mean, how dangerous is the Taliban in Afghanistan? Not to say it's not, but is this, this is not like killing Baghdadi. This is, you know. Well, not in a counterterrorism sense, but in an, in a U.S. policy and withdrawing troops from Afghanistan sense, it's potentially significant. And I guess therein lies the debate, right? So, you know, if the Obama administration would like to draw down forces from an Afghanistan that is still unstable because the Taliban have been on the offensive uh, in recent months, almost trying to make up for the death of Malal Mar last year or a couple of years ago, it turns out. Um, you know, so to the extent that you can put a dent or a break in their advances on the ground, you create political space for the Afghan government. You create political space for a withdrawal of, of U.S. forces. And so, you know, that's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is that this decapitation strategy doesn't really do anything. Right. Well, I think there's, there's sort of two different tracks of significance. One is, does this uh, help the peace process? Does it inhibit the peace process, kind of the, the actual policy on the ground? Um, and, but then it is of... Um, sort of international legal consequence. Um, so the Pentagon has acknowledged U.S. participation in the drone strike, um, which occurred in Pakistan. Um, the Pakistanis have not acknowledged that they gave consent. So absent that acknowledgement, we would presume that they did not. Um, this is actually only the second time the, the Pentagon, I think, has confirmed a, a participation in drone strike in Pakistan, the other being Osama bin Laden. Yeah. Um, so sort of it, it does reignite all of the same legal questions that existed then, that apparently have not been answered in terms of unwilling and unable, sovereignty, all these sort of other issues all these years later, very yeah. much open. I mean, I think the, the, the Pakistani position uh, with respect to consent is they don't consent, but they also don't object in the sense that while they're while they say they don't consent, and if they're asked, they they say, no, we don't consent, in any given operational setting, they 
don't do any of the things like shooting down a, a defenseless drone that a country that really objected would do, and nor nor do they, uh, you know, when they're when they are specifically notified that uh, you know a drone is going to attack a particular space, they actually do clear the airspace, and so they. They, so you're saying that's tacit consent. Well, I don't know what it is. I think I think the best way to understand it is it's uh, acknowledgement that it's going to happen and cooperation at a at a without formal consent. But what so thing would do, what is the how does the unwilling part factor in here, Susan? How do we assess a government's willingness or unwillingness. Well, so I think I think that gets to sort of Ben's question about what tacit consent and sort of what's actually going on. You know, one of the interesting things um, about sort of the, the reporting afterwards is this Wall Street Journal story. I don't know if anyone else read it on how the U.S. tracked and killed the leader of the Taliban. It's actually, it gives a lot of insight into, for example, signals intelligence collection. This is a very specific piece on how exactly they located him, how they targeted him. And it's interesting that um, the U.S. military uh, officials, who are, of course, anonymously uh, quoted, um, make really, uh, they're very careful to explain it in such a way that gives the Pakistani government a lot of plausible deniability. For example, they specifically say that the um, that the Reaper drones crossed into the border in Pakistani airspace flying low over the mountains along the Afghanistan-Pakistan border to exploit gaps in radar coverage. So it's sort of interesting whether or not, as you know, to your point, Ben, um, the U.S. is trying to sort of bulk up the case for the Pakistanis to make that they didn't know, didn't know by didn't giving... There's yeah. another piece that was in that that that, <clears throat> that article that hasn't been fully explored yet, which was it was notable. Mullah Omar, uh, sorry, Mullah Mansour, had been in Iran visiting family. Right, apparently he, like, traveled. Well, was leaving right. Iran, which, may, which starts to make, make one wonder... Um, is there some intelligence sharing going on between Iran and the U.S.? Or, there... or you know, the Pakistanis clearly let the guy in and out of the country, so that they too. clearly knew he so was that there. That goes to unwilling, right? No, I mean, look, there's certainly an unwilling side to this. The Pakistan, the, the Afghan Taliban, is a creature of the ISI, and the ISI has cultivated it over the years, sustained it in office, and has protected it its leadership, including Mullah Omar, for years and years and years. And, uh, you know, the idea that we were going to say, hey, uh, you know, uh, Pakistani government, here's where Mullah Mansour is, uh, can you do something about it, is about as ridiculous as the idea that we were going to tell them that we knew where Osama bin Laden was. It just wasn't going to happen. And, you know, we were going... Those are operations that we have never trusted the Pakistani government to do. Uh, sometimes we have worked with them on al-Qaeda stuff. But to my knowledge, we've never really worked with them on Taliban stuff because the Taliban is, you know, is their little project. So can we just go back for a minute to the wisdom or efficacy of a decapitation strategy against the Taliban? Because, Susan, as you noted... Can we use a different metaphor? Than decapitation. Yeah, I think decapitation. When we're dealing with these what, groups, that's but what like the military calls Explosion it. noise. You know, <sighs> the, the removal of the leadership of these organizations. They this is put forward as having been a very successful strategy against Al Qaeda core. 
Um, and it's the strategy that they're saying they're trying to use against ISIS, and they're saying they're trying to use against the, the Afghan Taliban. But as you noted, Susan, there's an ongoing negotiating process here. And so you're basically saying, oh, uh, if you're fighting and talking at the same time, we're going to keep killing your leaders. What kind of incentive structure does that well, it's create sort of, for a negotiating process? There's also an incredibly weird process of sort of um, messaging to it as well in terms of um, is the U.S. strategy essentially just to keep killing them until we find a negotiating partner we like? Right. right? So the idea was, okay, uh, you know, Mansoor comes, he's participating in the peace process, then all of a sudden he doesn't like the peace process. So you're dead. And then the next person... That's I mean, some hard-edged negotiating. <laughs> how, far, how far do we go with this, guys? Right? Until and I'm not of, sure it until meets they with get the, uh, the message. Yeah. Right. I'm going to add a new chapter to the art of the deal, <laughs> <laughs> droning the leadership of the other side. Well, you know, actually, this is actually a, this is a policy that Donald Trump could love. I mean, he would sit there and say, like, I'm willing to negotiate with you, but if you're not going to meet my terms, you know, you're out of here. Get the next guy. You're exactly. fired. You know, vote you off the island. But one thing that, I mean, it, it's sort of humorous, but there also is a consequence to starting over again, because, of course, the leader then has to establish control over the organization. And, and um, you know, that takes time. There's a risk of who that person is. Right, you know, so are you, we, might, you might not have authoritative leadership to negotiate with. Right, so is this one step forward, two steps back? Kind of what is this actually? If the goal here is peace yeah. or peace negotiations, does this strategy actually help? Or, but or we have to imagine no, at least in the near term, right? I mean, you did just kill our leader and you want us to come back to the table and negotiate? Well, and moreover, now we're all running off in different directions, com- right. you know, competing with one another, and we're not going to be able to negotiate effectively. So this, I mean, and this is exactly the argument made by a colleague of mine, uh, Vonda Felbaugh-Brown, in a New York Times op-ed that, that ran earlier in the week, that essentially... What this uh, drone strike has done is set back the negotiating process and maybe even made it harder for the United States to achieve its goals in Afghanistan. Yeah. Well, we will see when, um, you know, the next Mullah's replacement comes Mullah along. Mullah Shane. Yes. Trust me, you will find a very willing negotiating partner in Mullah Shane. So wait. So I'm here to talk. And so I can be bought. So who <laughs> is the, 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 the new boss? Meet the new boss. Oh, yes. You know, Hold is, on. Is he, and is he same as the old boss? I have the same here. He was the deputy. I'm not even going to um, take a shot. Malawi Haibatula Akunzada. Oh, great. We can't even, uh, we're going to oh, have pronunciation. Why is your name so hard to pronounce? Malawi Haibatula. Haibatula. Malawi, so Malawi Haibatula. It sounds like a restaurant in Hawaii. It's got a nice cadence to it. Sounds like a surfing move. You have a beautiful name, sir. (laughs) You have a lovely name. (laughs) Duck. (laughs) Oh, dear. Oh, dear. You have a very recognizable face. Don't let anyone take pictures of it. (laughs) I gotta run about two miles that way. Oh, good luck. Malawi. Um, Okay, let's move on. Uh, State Department Inspector General report out this week. Hillary Clinton. Is, so first question, is Tamara recused from this part of the conversation? I, I will not recuse myself. What I will say is I found, I would say, no news in this report except for this. Because, of course, we all knew that the State Department had miserable IT, and yeah. we already knew that there was a huge scandal about the contractor that built this archiving and retrieval system. 
But the one new piece of news was that Secretary of State Colin Powell used a private email address for all, that's right, all of his State Department email while he was serving as secretary. I disagree. I think there's a, a significant other piece of news, and it's going to haunt Hillary Clinton for the entire campaign, and that's that uh, she didn't ask, or they could find no evidence that she asked for approval to do this, or that anyone did on her behalf, and that that approval would not have been forthcoming had had it been requested. And I think that's going to be, uh, you know, that's a pretty, uh, you know, I, 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 it's not, you know, it's not going to get anybody indicted, but it, I, I do think that's going to be a serious problem for her because it's going to give, give a lot of ammunition to the idea that she didn't care about the rules and, and, you know, did what she wanted irrespective of what the rules said. But didn't we already know that? I mean, there's yes. never been any question about whether, she did or didn't ask permission. We know she didn't ask, didn't actively seek permission. She just did it. No, but in addition, though, there, there was the conf the finding in this report that she had. Um, that, again, this is several le layers below her, of course. That somebody asked about it and was told this has been approved by the lawyers. Don't ask about this again. And so there does seem to be like a a disregard for the rules combined with a kind of bullying of people who ask questions about it. So look, I, I'm going to come out swinging against the State Department in general here. Um, <laughs> Spoken like an IC lawyer. from the IC. Yeah. Um, so it's no secret that um, especially those agencies that are responsible for the protection of networks and classified information and the State Department do not have um, a productive working relationship. Um, there is a lot of tension and, um, frankly, animosity at times. Um, and that animosity often plays out at the lawyer level. Um, who is allowed access to what, why, what executive orders can have enforcement provisions, what don't. Um, you know, I saw, uh, you know, the IC partner with a lot of federal agencies as part of NSA's uh, information assurance mission. And I would go on the record as saying the State Department was um, the least cooperative, the least knowledgeable about their own networks, and frankly, the most overtly hostile to the notion of external security accountability. Um, that's that's a personal perception, sort of almost based off of, of the tone, right, sort of this, this instinctive notion. So seeing an IG report that sort of acts whenever they say uh, permission would not have been granted had it been asked, you know, I, I just, it's, I'm sort of inherently suspicious because having seen how they sort of approach security issues in general, how could anyone have said that? There's no, there was no discernible policy that I could tell. Um, I mean, I, I was never in the State Department, and so maybe everything was running fine, and they just didn't want anyone else to sort of look at it. But I, I mean, look, this, the the uh, information security situation of the State Department has been a catastrophe for a very long time, not to mention in other parts of the federal government. So now to sort of you know, litigate the issue and say, oh, you know, oh, well, of course we would have done this, of course we would have done, we would have said no. Look, they hadn't said no to uh, apparently a number of previous secretaries of state. This was sort of the common practice. Uh, I just, I, I find it uh, suspicious. Um, and, and that, you know, the IG report, what's interesting in it is really how hard it comes down on how bad the State Department in general is doing. Um, who should be held accountable, right? So maybe maybe the Secretary of State should be held accountable for not resolving systemic problems. But I don't think it reveals new information necessarily about 
Hillary Clinton's law-abiding sensibilities. Is, should we draw any conclusions from this report about the likelihood of her facing an indictment uh, from the Justice Department, given that the FBI investigation is still going? Or are these just two I things think that you can't draw? there are two different categories, really, because my understanding is that the IG report only focuses on the unclassified stuff. And, in fact, the IG was told by the FBI stay out of our lane. We're doing the, the classified stuff. You don't get to talk about that. And so, you know, except for this, this, uh, question, which Susan suggests the answer the State Department gave was mostly a rear covering exercise about did anyone on the secretary's staff ask permission to use a private email address, um, in, in doing normal business. I don't think that there's any overlap between the IG report and the FBI. And can we be- can, I know, like, journalists aren't allowed to be predictive about this, but can we just be straight that there is zero chance of an indictment of Hillary Clinton? Um, so I was at Kenyon College not too long ago with the FBI director, and he gave a speech to a whole bunch of Kenyon College students. And one of the Kenyon College people asked in the Q&A uh, what he could say about this investigation. And he, and I refer you to please go look at the video of this. And, and Jim Comey stands up there and says, Oh, let me tell you all about that investigation. That's literally a quote. And then he proceeds to say, Of course, he's not going to talk about the investigation. But the first thing he did was joke about it. Um, now, the first, the very. And you think that means nothing's going down? Well, I'm just saying the body language, like, I, I think the FBI is, going, you know, is going to be absolutely straight up on this. But I think if you're getting ready to recommend an indictment of the party nominee to be the president of the United States, you don't joke, you don't start by saying, like, let's have a joke about whether I can talk about this. The other thing is, like, it must have been some kind of land speed record from the time the IG report hit the uh, Capitol Hill to when it was leaked to the media. So I think the more sort of um, concrete indication that there's no indictment coming is that if there was going to be an indictment and there was preparations being made for an indictment, the idea that it would not be all over the media by now is just, it's unfathomable. I think the, the important question is, when are they going to make the announcement of the non-indictment, right? Uh-huh. When will this be Do over? they do such a thing? Well, the, the, they have to say the investigation they, has concluded. They, they, have to, they have to say it's been closed. I think there's other evidence that there's just nothing brewing here. One is that if there were, you know, a sitting grand jury that were actively, you know, investigating the hell out of this stuff... Issuing a lot of Susan would be sitting on it. Issuing right. Well, Susan's unfit for grand jury service, but issuing a lot of subpoenas, um, calling everybody who's ever been within a hundred meters of Hillary Clinton to testify. You would know this was happening. But that is supposed to be a secret. Those proceedings are closed. No, there. But the lawyers, first of all, the people who get called are perfectly entitled to talk about it. The prosecutors and the FBI are not entitled to talk about it. But as somebody who watched numerous grand juries implicating, in investigating the Clintons for numerous things, there is no way to keep that stuff secret. And the defense bar always has a joint defense agreement so that they're talking about, they're sharing all kinds of information. They're always feeding stuff to the press. We would know a lot 
about what was going on if that investigation were in a uh in, in an You're active... just breaking Trey Gowdy's heart here, Ben. I'm, look, Trey Gowdy may have something, you know, I'm sure has something big planned for October. But, but nothing about the body language of this entire investigation says indictment to me. Okay, so explain and to me. And that's before you get to the news stories that say their FBI is going to, tr- you know, try to close it out in July, right? Okay, so explain to me then if that's what's the clear body language. Why did this IG report get so much coverage as presaging some horrible news for Hillary Clinton? Well, I don't. Well, that's a good question. Yeah, I mean, media. I, well, why? see, I took it yeah, as media. I took it as more. Oh, it's interesting. I didn't view it as it was presaging some kind of bad news for her, but rather it was the first time that any kind of official body had come down and said what you did was wrong, and you can't deny it anymore, and the rules did not allow you to do this. But, I mean, obviously everyone's mind then goes to the FBI part. And maybe I'm just my own biases here because I'm with you. I don't think that the IG and the FBI investigation can be um, compared. But look, I mean, the minute that some you know, inspector general report comes out and says this, of course that's where the media coverage is going to go and speculate the hell out of it. Um, because also it's something we can easily speculate about because none of us really knows the answer. So there's no stakes, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's not like you're going to find out your sources it's were wrong. We like have no sources. It's like a missing airplane and nobody knows what yeah, happened. Right. Oh, I mean, I, I, I think when an investigation uh, of a matter of this profile is active at the level that somebody's going to get indicted, you know about it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's move on to object lessons. We have two object lessons this week, don't we? We do. I'll do mine you first. You want to use yours first? Okay. Um, so mine is a Dear Colleague letter uh, that Representative Ted Lieu and Will Hurd uh, sent to their colleagues about cybersecurity uh, for fellow members of Congress. Ted Lieu, who uh, 60 Minutes hacked his phone with his permission or something. With his permission, yes. although I think that later uh, stories indicated how misleading kind of that 60 Minutes profile was, but... Neither here nor there. You're just saying that because you know the NSA has been protecting the SS7 vulnerability for decades. Shh. Uh, so in this recommendation to their colleagues, they, and they make sort of, you know, baseline cybersecurity recommendations, use complex passwords, two-factor authentication, um, encryption and encrypted messaging apps. That got a nice little bump in the media. Yeah. Um, use only trusted networks. Um, so I think what's totally interesting about this is... Um, that Congress is now resorting to sort of the most basic self-help, right? Um, so <laughs> theoretically, password. <laughs> but like, but like, the, the colleagues are advising other colleagues about this, in right? a in a formal dear colleague letter because <laughs> right. none of them state thought of about using complex passwords. Exactly, the state of information security in uh, particularly in the House of Representatives, although in the Senate as well, um, apparently is such that like colleagues are just making recommendations to other colleagues. I'm I just think it's a really uh, interesting indication of apparently the lack of faith in the institutions, um, which are the, the sergeant arms, uh, that are supposed to be securing these networks, providing guidance. Um, you know, so I'm uh, I'm a little bit laughing at this letter. Although they should, they, people should be following this advice. It's um, it's all sound advice, but. Uh, a little, a little insight into the current state of affairs uh, well, at Congress <laughs> as they yell at other people about the state of their networks. And maybe also an interesting <coughs> reflection of the state of communication between members of Congress that they have to say these things to one another in a dear colleague letter. Yeah. Right, and although not I thought say, ne- over lunch. <laughs> or over WhatsApp. <laughs> 
That's how he really should have done just it. Just via emojis. Totally. Yeah. I, I mean, look, it's um, anytime Ted Lieu and Will Hurd can remind people that they have computer science degrees, they, they capitalize on the opportunity oh, to do so. Nice. They are. They are the only two with I just it, think but, it's um, great that members of Congress are encouraging other members of Congress to start using encrypted encrypted communications. <laughs> right. And to I learn really... the difference between a direct message and a tweet. Right, right. right. Can I just say, if Congress were to go dark, that would really be wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> no, there would be so many things that like, reporters like me wouldn't get to write about. And all their embarrassing texts and photographs? No, no, they, well, they send those to the public, not... Oh, you, you mean know, if they would just go... Oh, you I mean, mean, Anthony like, Weiner was, oh, was, 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 was tweeting, tweeting that stuff. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, he, he, he should have been WhatsApping it. Although that won't even really for Snapchatting it, but that necessarily doesn't protect you either. Maybe that's what Ted Lieu could also advise them next. Don't Snapchat. Snapchat your junk. Don't Snapchat yeah. your junk. Not as secure as you let's think. Get a, let's get a CRS report on that right now. Dear colleagues, screenshots, they happen. Okay? Be careful. <laughs> um, our second object, actually, is something you're going to be able to see for yourself from now on. We're getting a new group picture. We are. It's School Picture Day. It's School Picture Day. Security. We've had the same photograph of the three of us for a long time. None of us were, some of us were not very fond of that picture. And then we, and then we, added, and then we added a fourth. Yes. We added a fourth and we didn't change the picture. Didn't change the picture. But we are now our new ha enlarged happy, happy rational family. security family. Yes. Yeah, we'll be there. Uh, so check it out. Uh, and that brings us to the end of another show. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. And you can find our show archive, of course, at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. And we'll do another uh, listener questions uh, in the near future, I think, too. So keep your questions coming. Our show is edited, as always, by Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by Donald Trump and the Art of Decapitation. Oh. <laughs> sounds like a, it sounds like a metal band, Grim. doesn't it? Either yeah. a metal band or like a really like nouveau. I thought yeah. you were gonna go with Mola Mansour and the Drone Strikes. Emo band. Oh, okay, yeah, that would be more like an emo band, wouldn't yeah. it? The Drone Strikes. What about kind of music Trump listens to? Probably death metal. <laughs> Pakistani death metal. It's a very underappreciated genre. Yeah, or emo. Right, yeah, right. Uh, no, of course, our music is performed by Sophia Yan, who is, I don't think is into death metal. No, Sophia. She's not a mullet either. Sophia's really into Brahms. Brahms. Oh, that's much tamer. Uh, and let's play to play the fast tempo, perhaps. On behalf of my friends, Ben Wittes, Tamarkoff Ben Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. 